Jesus had done a number of miracles. He had effectively fed thousands of people. He had healed people of, uh, of disease and sickness. He had cast out demons. He had stilled the storms. He had uh, confronted the demoniac legion. So many of the supernatural uh, things that happened. And all the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were coming all the way from Jerusalem. And the one thing that they want to talk to him is about whether they wash their hands. The irony of what is being said here needs to be seen in the context of what is happening. Jesus has done all these supernatural things that only God could do. But these people, the religious authorities, were coming and quibbling over matters of whether you wash your hands and uh, issues about purity. Now, to them... It was important. Issues of purity to them were critical because they wanted to honor God. And so it starts off well, but it goes off the wrong way. And I don't think to, to, to go very far to ask you to think about Malaysia. You know, in Malaysia, we have another group of people who are very similar, very similar in their rituals and traditions. But my focus is not on them. My focus is on us, so that we might learn from the Jewish traditions, from other very similar traditions, what does it mean when we talk about purity and holiness? And what did Jesus have to say about this? Now we see here that there are two conflicts uh, and I'm actually going from Mark chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to 23. Although we've read only selected verses out of this, Jesus begins his first conflict with them about the tradition of the elders. Uh, again, to friends who, who like to take notes, there's a sermon outline in the middle or at the back of the, or the bulletin, and there are some of these fill-in-the-blanks for those who might feel a bit drowsy. Uh, so, the first verses, verses 1 to 13, is over the tradition of the elders. We've read up to verse 8. But if you continue to read verse 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, more comes to light. Now, I need to explain a little bit about the background of what these traditions are. The, the first issue that they talked about is about uh, defiled hands, hands that are not clean. Now, one of the things that the Jewish uh, do, and you'll find this very similar to those who copy their traditions from the Jews, i.e. Uh, our cousins, that they wash their hands, they do ablutions. You know, uh, for them, really, that term cleanliness is next to godliness is very, very true. That it's not only just how you wash, you know, it's not only what you wash, it is how you wash, when you wash, in what particular order that you wash. And in this particular text, in the original Greek, there was a, a rather unusual term which the NIV doesn't translate. It's the term that says, with a fist, washing with a fist. Uh, commentators argue, what does that mean? Uh, and the argument tends to go, if you go back to the rabbinic law, uh, the Mishnah, which is the interpretation of the Torah. 
washing with a fist quite likely means you hold at least a fistful of water and you wash all the way up to the wrists with your hands exposed in a particular way. And they would wash fastidiously. And you will read here, it says there, uh, Mark gives this explanation for people who don't understand. Verse 2, They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. In other words, not clean. In fact, uh, Mark explains this, that is, unwashed. And then in brackets, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, virtually everything. Now, I know some of you are already automatically thinking, oh yeah, my cousins also do something like that. You cannot use this plate, you cannot use that plate because that plate has been unclean. But I want to point out an interesting fact here which you don't know about the background of the Jewish people. Mark makes this specific comment, when they come back from the marketplace, why? You see, in the marketplace is where it is not just Jew, but Jews and Gentiles. The definition of a Gentile is one who is not a Jew. Very simple definition. It is basically the done lion lion category. And in the Jewish tradition, if you are eating, of, eating something and a Gentile walks past and his shadow falls over your food, Wow, terrible. It becomes unclean. And you have to purify yourself. So you imagine you're walking around and you go past the Gentile and the Gentile shadow falls on you. What goes through the mind of the Jew? Now when you have that element of uh, thinking and you believe that purity means separation, because as soon as I am in the midst of other people, I am going to be corrupted and I shall be unholy. This is where you begin to segregate yourself. You build up your walls, you build up your barriers, you put your barbed wire. There's no entry, only for Jews. But we do that too, you know. We do that too in our communities. When you enter into your very nice, expensive, cushioned car, you close the door and says, this is only for select people. We have all these barriers. And so the first conflict is over the tradition of the elders. But Jesus uh, develops it even further, you know. Um, he develops a second issue which, with them which is over the source of impurity. Now, if you follow the argument and you read it, the Pharisees accuse Jesus, or rather he says, what kind of teacher are you? That your followers are not even following these simple rules that our elders and our traditions have given us all the way. Our moyang, you know, great-grandfather all did this and it's good. Lousy teacher. You are not teaching your disciples properly. Jesus does not answer their question. 
He doesn't say, no, no, what they're doing is not unclean. He doesn't say that. But instead, he responds back with a very strongly worded argument. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Wow! <laughs> Slap in the face. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Verse 6. Okay, if you're following me, verse 6. You have let go of the commands of God and are building on, on human tradition. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. It's typical Jesus. You ask him a question, he tai chi back with something else. But he takes the argument even further. It's not so much about undefiled hands. He's talking about, he goes, he brings it further and talks about unclean food, which is not the question that was asked. The original question that was asked is, not clean hands. But Jesus went further and he says, unclean food, but not just unclean food. What exactly is the source of impurity? The thing that makes you unclean, unrighteous unholy and then if you want to you go back and you read these verses from 9 all the way onwards uh, 9 to 14 or 9 to 13 and there Jesus talks about this issue of korban now let me just summarily explain this in the Jewish tradition it is possible to actually tell your parents that I can't support you I can't take care of you and I can't afford the money to give to you because I have set aside this money as korban to God. Okay, it's equivalent to saying the money that I would use in order to take care of you, I am dedicating to God. Now, it did not require that you actually do it. It just required that you must state the intention. And by doing so, they had basically raised these rules, traditions of the elders, because there's nothing in all of the Bible that said that you should do this. In fact, the Bible was very clear in the opposite direction. Commandment, ten commandments, you shall honour your father and your mother. And they had gone so far as to say honouring your father and mother means also providing for their needs. They had a more specific requirement. So, they abrogated God's rule and replaced it with man-made rules. So, one way to keep all your property and not, not give anything for your parents was to say, I'm dedicating this to God. But the control of when you give, how you give, and how much you give is still left up to you. They had done that. They had denied God's rule. But I have an even better example. When you think about Jesus and he gave his story about the Samaritan, he says, the priest was coming down the road and you have to understand that given the geography, the priest right, had just come from the temple and he was going back to his house. He sees this half-dead man don't know what person, he sees this half-dead man, he crosses the road, bypasses, and carries on his journey. Second person comes along. Okay. 
is a, 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 a Levite who goes and sees this person, bypasses again and goes past. That's the equivalent of having the pastor and then the lay leader or any one of the church people who are working there walk and bypass and people say, why did they stop? Why did they not do it? Oh, because if they were to actually touch the body or if they were to come into contact with blood, it would make them ritually unclean for seven days. We know this because when you read Exodus and you read Leviticus, this ritual cleanliness rules were there. That if you touch a dead person, oh, wow, uh, that makes you unclean. Anything that is clean, that touches an unclean thing, makes you unclean. So they bypass in order that they may remain ritually clean. But in so bypassing this, you ignore the greater rule. Love your brother as you love yourself. How many times have we created these rules? Uh, it happens a lot in church, you know. It happens a lot to pastors. You know, we're busy, about to come to church, then somebody comes alongside along the way and say, Pastor, I need you to sit down and listen to, to me tell you this. Eventually, it's all about money. <laughs> Eventually, it's all about, I need help, I need your prayer. But we have other things that are happening along the way. And I have to think, am I more engrossed with the ritual than I am with the person? Am I engrossed in coming and doing these things that make me feel good, ignoring the argument that just began in the house over things that really mattered? We ignore these things and we ignore God's law in order to follow the pattern and the traditions that we set. The tradition of the elders uh, tried to help Israel to be holy unto the Lord. It tried to help people in Israel to be holy unto the Lord. You find in Leviticus 19 verse 2, uh, where it says, you know, the Lord Yahweh says to his people, Be holy, for I am holy. Right? And you might be thinking, where did these Jewish people get this idea that you needed to wash? Very simply, it's taken from legislation in Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 to 21. Okay, let me repeat that. Some of you will want to go back and check this. Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 to 21, and Exodus 40, verse 12, prescribed that Aaron and the Levitical priesthood must wash their hands and their feet, and sometimes their whole body, before they entered into the Holy of Holies or they entered into the temple. Now, there are several things that you need to be very careful in hearing properly. This legislation was intended for the priesthood, Aaron, right? Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, because they were entering into the temple, the physical embodiment of God's presence on earth. And the rule was, wash your hands, wash your feet. 
But you see, tradition comes into the play when people say, okay, if I'm to wash, how much water do I use? And if I'm to wash any particular way, you know, if I mandi kerbau, just splash water, is that enough? Or, or, or what? And so they created all these additional rules. And so what happened was these Pharisees and Sadducees who wanted to pursue this lifestyle of purity decided, let's all take this further. If the temple is God's presence and my home and my palace is the temple too and I want to extend purity into my house, maybe this is what I need to do. But not only did they do that, which is not really that wrong, not really that bad, it becomes a problem when you make it an idol and you judge others based on what they do. Because this is what they began to do. Hey, you unclean. You're not washing your hands. You are less than me. You are unclean. I am more clean because of the things that I do. We Christians are better because of the things that we do. We Methodists are better because we have the discipline which you do not have. Our distinctiveness may become a stumbling block and an idol because we pursue that and we feel that that is better to make others feel lesser. We have this term that was given by this guy, Jaroslav Pelikan, a theologian who said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, why do I say this? Tradition is quite often very important, mainly because it helps us to enact what is important. But when you cling on to tradition in the form of traditionalism, and the tradition becomes fossilized. In other words, it becomes so hard that it ignores what God wants. Then you begin to engage in a dead faith. Now, I don't intend to hurt feelings. But as a pastor who has gone through the Methodist church for now 30, 40 years now, uh, I've encountered traditionalism, especially in the Methodist pattern, for a very long period of time. Hours and hours spent in LCC meeting, arguing over the fact that we must have an organ. Because Methodist hymns must be sung with an organ. If it is not an organ, it is not holy. It is not right. Must have piano can only sing hymns and sing hymns in that particular tune. Cannot modulate up or down. Tempo, that tempo. Why? Because I'm a Methodist. My parents, my father was a Methodist. I joined the choir. We always sang it this way. Singing it any other way makes you un-Methodist. So we said, it's alright. We don't mind being un-Methodist as long as we are Christian. But we argued, many people argued over many of these forms of tradition. There was once in a meeting, it got really heated. I know our church, we don't have an altar area. But in some of the more traditional churches, they used to have an area in the middle 
where every time they want to come to communion, they would come and kneel down around this area. And so once the youth decided we would like to have a concert in our church, a revival rally call our youths. So two things they asked of the church. One, can we move the pews? And everybody like, <gasps> the pews, they're very heavy, they're expensive wood. And if you move them around, they might break. So already automatically they were inclined to say no. The second request that they said was, um, is it okay if our people stand in the front? Because that's how our youth worship God. You know, they like to stand, they like to come in front, and they like to be fervent. And if they do this, they're standing around the, the communion railing. Another collective gasp. <gasps> what if they decide to stand on it? What if they decide to sit on it? What if they decide to crowd around it? And so, after much talking, they said, do you want the youth to come or not? And will you look at this from its proper historical context? Number one, we said, every religious place in Asia does not have chairs or pews or benches. Every religious place in Asia has nothing of that. Only churches. Why? Because the British and the Americans who came brought the pews along with them. You think about it, every Hindu temple, every Buddhist temple, every mosque, every Asian worship place doesn't have any of these things. They brought their traditions and they made it the traditions of the elders. That a church is not a church unless you have a pew. The church is not a church if it is not built in a particular cross section, in the format of the symbols we brought in and we made that our religion. So, firstly, you said the pews. You know, it's not a mandate that the church must have pews. And if the youth who were very energetic said, it's okay, we promise to take care of the pews and we will move it properly and make sure that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get spoiled. They said, okay, fine. Secretly, some of the older members came and said, you know, if you have a fire or you introduce some termites to it, that's okay because some of them felt that the pews were very hard and the church was not willing to change because they couldn't find a way to sit comfortably and, and it was hurting them. But the second one was even more interesting. They went and dug the history and they found out the main reason why we have those places where people used to kneel around was that they developed this pattern from an early church tradition. And the reason why the early church traditions had this was that the early church was in a house. And in a house, you don't just have people, you have animals as well. Cattle, donkeys, horses, chickens. And in order to prevent these animals from coming to the place where you're going to put the bread for the communion, they built this fencing around it. And so the places where people were kneeling and saying, I'm going to receive the Lord's communion, were historically different places. It had evolved over time. Now, I am not saying, uh, please be very clear, 
I'm not saying that tradition is bad. No. Every nation without a constitution, i.e. the traditions of its elders, falls. But every nation also reviews its laws in order to ensure that it is in the right context and it affirms the principles and more importantly, the underlying values of what God intends. Tradition, the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism, dead faith of the living. You need to choose which form of tradition you want to take. Now, the Pharisees tried to preserve and proclaim their distinctive holiness in order to keep themselves separate from others. And the great danger here is that uh, we turn our distinctiveness and our purity into an idol that supersedes the Word of God. The key example here is to look at Jesus. Jesus did not keep himself separate high above the heavens in his heavenly thrones, separate from these unclean, sinful, corrupt people. No. He came down and he dwelt among his people. And out of love for his enemies, died for us while we were yet sinners. We have an issue to struggle with. Does the church get its hands dirty by being a part of community, the church dispersed within the community? Or does it seek to keep itself separate from the others? And not only separate, but they look down on them. Because when you understand what the Pharisees and Sadducees were, they were labelling others, they were denigrating them, and making them less than who they were. And they did not want to have any part with these people. Do we turn our distinctives and this pursuit of purity, a wrong form of purity, into an idol? that supersedes the Word of God. Why? Because it says, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them all things that have taught That imperative, go, doesn't say go only to the ones that you like. It says go to everyone. Let us not make our distinctive a separating factor that prevents people from coming to here. As chaplain of the boys' brigade, as chaplain of the schools, many times I have asked people, why don't you come to church? And I'm not talking about Penang Trinity, although I do think that this same argument applies. I came from a KL church, and in the KL church, the brigade boys and girls would tell me, uh, Pastor, thank you, we cannot come to this church. I say, why? He says, as soon as you enter the church, you don't feel welcome. Really? Why? Very rich church. Parking spots all, you see all very rich cars. I say, what does the car have to do with you coming to church? Uh, yeah, you know, Pastor, when we come there, we, we look, they look at us one kind one. As if we don't belong here. Why are you here? We are rough. We are very simple. We are not very seaman. Man. Sorry, Cantonese word for very polite. <laughs> we don't belong. 
When will the church ever make others feel they are welcome? It all is a matter of the heart because Christ says, uh, sorry, it's not very clear up there. I need to read this out to you. Verse 21. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. In verse 21, Jesus says, It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy. These evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, the first uh, six of them are described in the plural as a noun, as things that people do. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. These are things that people do. No amount of water cleans you. No amount of ritual will cleanse that heart just by the things that you do. The following ones, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly are also singular nouns that describe characteristic issues. Again, no amount of washing and cleanness, no amount of what you eat, no amount of the rituals of purification, which are all external, deals with those issues of the heart. So Jesus is turning around to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I'm now presenting it to you, Christians, Methodists. No amount of rituals and the things that you do makes you right by the things that you, the traditions that you follow. It is not the tradition that makes you clean. The source of purity and holiness is a clean heart. And only God can clean an unclean heart. It required them to see Christ for who He is rather than how they wanted Him to be presented. How will we as a church deal with this? I had a second statement there that says, unfortunately you can't see. Cleanliness, in this sense, cleanliness is not next to godliness. Dirt is, what kind of dirt? Dirt, pain, sorrow, prejudice, injustice, treachery. When we are called to be salt, salt is poured out into corruption. When we are called to be light, light shines into darkness. It is not intended that a light remain with all other light. It's like, why do you switch on a torchlight in a room that is already lit? Why do you put salt in a place where it's a, still a salt shaker? It needs to be put out and used up. And so Christians are called to enter into difficult situations. Are we going to listen to that and are we going to do that?
Are we going to be people who move aside from doing church to being church? And being church means doing the difficult things in places where life is so much harder and not so clean. It's easier for us to fall into our comfortable patterns and traditions because it makes us feel good. But will we realize that our traditions become an idol in itself when we fail to do what God calls us to do? So what then do we do? I'd like to ask you these questions. Have you made your distinctiveness and purity an idol? Have you made your distinctiveness and purity an idol? I'd appeal to you to not make an idol out of your denominationalism or your religiosity. When you see the Lord at work, He is working in all places, in all forms, as Jesus reveals Himself in places that you least expect. Go seek that out. Quite often it means sometimes being a part of the gossip and dealing with the gossip that goes on in your workplace or in your marketplace. Secondly, do you avoid, uh, sorry, do you examine your traditions and avoid traditionalism? Part of the purpose of worship, for example, is the expression of celebration in a current context. In a current context. One of the arguments in our previous church, we had a senior group that says, we've always had an organ, and an organ is nice to play the hymns. But you know what was the argument coming from the other side? The answer was, nobody plays the, argu- uh, the organ now. None of the youth, none of the adults play organs. Only those above 50. And when the 50-year-old says, I cannot play, who do they ask? They ask the young ones. They say, hey, you are part of the worship team, please play. And they force upon them and say, you must do this for us so that we maintain this tradition. And it wasn't a cheap organ. The organ was worth about 400000 Traditionalism. Do you examine your traditions and avoid traditionalism? Why? We want people to worship God. How do they best express themselves? not necessarily in the way that our traditions say it ought to be. And again, I remind you, I'm not against tradition. I'm against traditionalism, a very strict and fossilized, rigid interpretation of what we ought to do. Thirdly, in all your conflicts over traditions, purity and holiness, have you examined your heart? Why argue about how we arrange things and how we do things and all our rituals and traditions when the issue of the heart, the treachery, the lies, the betrayal, the greed, the impurity, all the thoughts that still exist are not dealt with. We deal with the external, we've not dealt with the source of the matter. And the source of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And so let me end with this thought for you. That Jesus said, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. It is not the external 
that affects you. It is what comes out of you. Will you use this verse to remind yourself throughout the week to examine your heart? Each and every time you have a thought that is untrue, examine your heart. And go to the only person who in all of Scripture has been the only person that has made the impure pure and the unclean clean. Christ Jesus. Invite Him into your heart and ask Him, Lord, deal with this. Let me give you one that is probably most important for many people. You get angry, you lash out in anger with your loved ones, your, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandparents. Examine your heart. And then you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I am angry. You know why, and even I don't understand why. But it is an emotion that does not honour you. Will you please come into my heart and help me to work in my work my anger so that it works itself to your good. And you can say that prayer for anything. Anger, lust, greed, covetousness. I think covetousness is one of the commandments, you know. Number 10. When you desire the thing that you don't have, which other people have. Oh, I wish I had that car. I wish I had that house. I wish I had more than what God has given to me. Covetousness. Not happy, complain, grumble. These are things which God wants to deal with, not the external, you come to church every Sunday, occupy the same seat. That's only part of the equation. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we ask for your help to help us to deal with the issues in our hearts. So often it is easy for us to hide behind our traditions and our rituals that make us separate from others and gives us this sense of pride and arrogance that we are more than we think we are. Grant us a sobering thought, Lord, that our hearts are deceitful and treacherous at times. And so we offer you our hearts, Lord. You are holy and you call us to be holy. Help us to follow Christ Jesus, who is the only one who has the ability to make our hearts pure before you. We ask this, O Lord, and pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.